Some of you will know the name Viktor Frankl. He was imprisoned in the Nazi concentration camps in the Second World War. He was in Auschwitz and Dachau. And as a Jewish professor of neurology, he was fascinated with all that was going on in the concentration camps. In particular, he loved to observe how there were some people who were able to survive. And yet there were many others who, who, who didn't survive, who didn't last long in the concentration camps. In 1946, following the war, he published his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's now sold over 8 million copies. And the thesis of the book is this, that the most fundamental human motive is to find meaning in life. Without it, we perish. And that's what he observed in the concentration camps. Those who found meaning in the midst of the meaninglessness survived. Those who found sanity in the midst of sanity made it through. In fact, his main conclusion was those who have hope in the midst of hopelessness will get through. It's a great discovery. And interestingly, that discovery he made had already been made 2,000 years before. Because here in Romans chapter 8, that's the very claim that Paul's making. If you have hope in Christ, the hope of glory, you can endure all the present sufferings of this age. Our future glory ought to impact how we live in the here and the now. Paul says that for the Christian, we are those who groan in hope for future glory. I have three points this morning. The groan of creation for future glory. The groan of Christians for future glory. The groan of the Holy Spirit to help Christians get to future glory. So the hope of the groan of creation for future glory, the groan of Christians, the groan of the Holy Spirit. Before we look at these three points, I want us just to look at verse 18, because that's where Paul lays out his thesis. Verse 18, he says these words, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What Paul does in this verse is he juxtaposes future glory with present sufferings. And that's because he wants us to put our present sufferings in proper perspective. Look at how verse 18 opens. He says, for I consider. Meaning, this is something I've given careful thought. I've weighed the evidence and I've reckoned it to be thus. Interestingly, the word in the original for uh, consider is the Greek word logizomai, where we get our word logic from. Paul is saying, I have logically deduced that the troubles we face as Christians in this current age are not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. If you like what Paul has done, he's taken the weightiness of all of his present troubles 
and he's put it on one side of a set of scales. And he watched the weightiness of his present suffering bring that set of scales down on that side. And then he's taken the weightiness of future glory and he's placed it on the other side of the scales. And he's watched his present sufferings go up because they are as light as a feather in comparison to the weight and heaviness of future glory. He, he, he's come to see that there is literally nothing that compares to what awaits us as children of God. This isn't the only place that Paul makes this statement. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Our light and momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory. What we suffer in this life is short. It's light in comparison to the eternity and the weightiness of the glory that is to come. I know that some of you are going through real suffering. I know some of you experience real pain. And I want you to know Paul's not being insensitive here. Paul is not being naive here. Paul is someone who the New Testament reveals to us as a man who greatly suffered. He knew suffering in his life. He had a thorn in his flesh. He asked the Lord to take it away three times, and the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power will be made perfect in your weakness. He was a man who was shipwrecked, homeless, went hungry, was beaten, into an inch of his life. Paul bore in his body, he said to the Galatians, scars of Christ. Paul doesn't make this statement because he is naive to suffering. No, he's actually a pastor who understands suffering and he deeply empathizes with people who suffer and he wants people who suffer as Christians to know your present suffering does not compare to what you've got in Christ. He wants you to put your present sufferings into their place and to see them in proper perspective. He's not making light of them. He just wants you to see them aright. Now, the end of verse 18 says this. The glory that is to come is the glory that will be, according to the ESV, revealed to us. What will be revealed to us on that final day? Christ. We will see Christ in all his glory. We will have what every single human being was made to have, the beatific vision, the blessed vision of seeing God. But interestingly, I think the ESV is not the best translation on this last line. I think if you've got an NIV, they get it right. The NIV says, the glory that is to be revealed in us. And that way better fits this context of this section of Romans. And you need to get your heads around this. Because of union with Christ, because we are heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, because when we, since on that day when we see Christ, First John tells us we will be made like Christ, you and I, on that day, 
put on full display the glory of Christ. Jesus in the high priestly prayer said this, all mine are yours, Father, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. He also said, Father, the glory that you have given me, I give to them. Because of union with Christ, the glory of Christ on that final day will be revealed in us. Fascinatingly, if you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, it says this, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe. Which is to say that on that final day, that when we see Christ and become, become like Christ, one of the most incredible things is that when we look at each other who are in Christ, we will be admiring Christ in one another. One of the best sermons ever preached on British soil was preached by C.S. Lewis in 1941 in Oxford at St. Mary's Chapel. And he preached a sermon entitled, The Weight of Glory. And in that sermon, he had five headings of what is ours at the last. It's five points where we shall be with Christ. Number two, we shall be like Christ. Number three, we shall share in the glory of Christ. Number four, we shall feast with Christ. And number five, we shall have official position in the universe with Christ. And in that amazing sermon, Lewis speculates what is involved in us being glorified, sharing in the glory of Christ. And he turned to Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, which says this, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. You need, to, you need to try and get this right. On that last day, because of our union with Christ, we will share in the glory of Christ. And you and I, on that day, will shine like the sun. Do you understand that about your future glory? Do you understand that because you are in Christ, you are with Christ, that you are a child of God, that on that last day you will share in the glory of Christ and people will see it? You will be like the sun? It's for that reason Paul can say our future glory is not worth comparing to our present sufferings. Now, let me show you why the NIV is right as we work our way through this. And now we come to our first heading, the groan of creation for future glory. Look at verse 19 with me. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the glory of Christ. No. What does creation eagerly long for? For the revealing of the sons of God. 
What Paul does in this verse is he personifies creation and he speaks of creation eagerly longing, standing on tiptoe, craning its neck to see what? The glory of the children of God. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase of the New Testament, said this, of Romans 8, verse 19, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Why does creation long for this? Why did God make this world? Why did he make creation? To be the theater of his glory. And on the sixth day when God made man, where did he make man from? The dust of the earth. The crowning of God's glory was to take the dust of the earth and to form it into Adam. The image bearer of God. Creation was made to put on full display in high definition the glory of God. Now, the reality is creation still declares the glory of God. The heavens declare his glory. The skies his handiwork. But because of the fall, creation is not the way it should be. And so in verses 20 and 21, it's like Paul gives us a commentary on Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. He says in verse 20, creation for the creation was subjected to futility. It could also be translated frustration. It cannot fulfill in its present form its original intended purpose. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, God described creation to Adam and Eve like this. Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed, seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. In other words, what God said is this creation is immensely productive. This creation is going to be kind to itself and it's going to be kind to its masters, you, Adam, you, Eve. This creation is your paradise. But then after the fall, God said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Because of the fall of Adam... This creation was subjected to futility. This creation was cursed. Just as an aside point, there are many people in our culture today who recognize that there is a problem with creation. There's a problem with this world. Sadly, many people in our culture, they might identify that there is a problem, but they don't know the root of the problem. God cursed this earth. God subjected it to futility because of mankind's sin. So many people who want to tell us that we've got to do something about this creation, and they're, and they're right. We're, we are, as God's image bearers, as those who have been given dominion, we are to look after creation. 
But our creation is broken. And we've got to remember that the root of the problem was our first sin, and it was God who frustrated it to this futility. Now, Paul goes on in verse 20, and he says this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it. Now, this is the bit you need to grasp. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's fascinating. The people in our culture who tell us with who tell us that there is a problem with creation are the biggest prophets of doom. The world is coming to an end. Ozone layer, melting ice, all the natural disasters, the changes in climate, they're the prophets of doom. The world's coming to an end is what we keep on hearing. You know what's remarkable about the Apostle Paul? He's a prophet of hope. This creation that's been subjected to the curse was done so in hope that one day it's going to be set free. From the bondage to corruption, death, decay, there's coming a day when it's all going to be over. When there will be no more suffering. Where there will be no more sickness. Where there will be no more death. And who will bring it about? The God who created this world. The God who subjected this world to the curse. It was his plan and purpose from the beginning. The renewal and the restoration of the earth. The words in hope. Our creation groans in hope. And what does it groan for? What, what does it want this freedom for? This is, this is marvelous. So that it can obtain the freedom of the children to see the, the, the glory of the children of God. Listen, Paul's a phenomenal theologian. Just as Adam and Eve brought the curse onto creation and creation shared, into, shared the curse. Well, just as God has saved those who are in Christ, creation will share in the glory that are that is for the children of God. And that's why creation longs for it. Because the dust of the earth will be made new and be given resurrected bodies and will live in the new earth and in the new heavens and they'll reign over it with Christ-likeness. They'll be the perfect, of, the perfect vice regents. It's the most incredible truth. Creation longs, eagerly longs, is on tiptoe for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In verse 22, Paul says it like this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul's just this brilliant commentator. If he is commentating on Genesis chapter 1, 2 to 3, he brings childbirth into his little exposition here in Romans. What was the curse put on women because of sin? That she would know pain in childbirth. And creation knows the pains of childbirth, which is a way to say this. Now, all mothers, all women, I know nothing about the pain of childbirth. I have two children, and I've witnessed it, but I know nothing personally, right? 
But I know that there is agony in childbirth. But the reason a woman goes through that agony is because of the ecstasy that follows. Because there is a child that is born, a new life. And the reason why creation groans, the reason why creation groans is in hope of the new creation that is to come. You need to know this, that glory is not just a place. Glory is the state of what we are going to become. We're going to share in Christ's glory. But if glory is the place, what is the place? Well, you read through Isaiah chapter 65, verses 15 to 27. You read through 1 Peter chapter 3 and 4, and you will see that the new heavens and the new earth and Revelation 21 and 22 tell us that it is this world made new. Now, it's beyond our fathoming, it's beyond our understanding, but God will set this world free. He'll burn up all the sin, he'll remove the curse as far as it is found, and he will make all things new so that we will enjoy living and sharing in the glory of Christ. Creation groans for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Second thing is the Christians groan for future glory. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So those of us who are Christians, those of us who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we too groan. Now, what Paul says here, you might be like, hold on a minute, right? Last week, you said, Andy, Paul said, actually, that we're adopted as sons and daughters. This week, Paul says, we are longing for our adoption. We, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. What? I thought we were adopted. Well, we are adopted. You are adopted if you're in Christ. You are a child of God. But your adoption is not complete. You, you, you are a new creation. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. But you don't have a new body. You live in a fallen body. You still sin. You live in a fallen world. Your adoption will be consummated. Your adoption will be fully realized when you receive the resurrection body, when you live in the new creation. And interestingly, the reason you groan as a Christian is because as you live in the now and the not yet, you know that as those who possess the Spirit, that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Like how many of us here, let's be really honest, know that in our relationship with God, things aren't well. They aren't as good as they should be. They aren't right. Do you know how you know that? Because the Holy Spirit. How many of us know that things aren't right in this world? They're not the way they're supposed to be. You know, you really know that. Because the Holy Spirit. Do you, we know that we're not like Christ. Do you know how we know that? Because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit living in us has given us a taste of our coming glory. He's the deposit, he's the down payment, he's a guarantee of our future inheritance. But because it's not yet been fully realized, 
we groan. We long that we could have a a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit that was just perfect, where we never let Him down, where we never disappoint, where we never sin. We, We long that we would live in a world where there is no more sickness, suffering, death, disease. We long that we would be like Christ. Your future glory is that day is coming. You will have a day where you will be in perfect relationship with God. There is a day coming where you will live in a perfect world. There is a day coming where you will be like Christ and you long for it. You know, in the, in the wisdom of God, suffering and pain are realities that God uses to remind us that this world is not our home. Sin is a reality that reminds us things are not the way that they should be. But they make us own in hope for future and that's why Paul says in verse 24 for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees our hope is not this world our hope is not life here and comfort here our hope is for what we do not presently see our hope is Christ our hope is a new heavens and new earth our hope is this new reality of relationship with God with no sin perfect spirit perfect resurrection bodies and Paul says as Christians we groan for that but if we hope for what we do not see here's how we wait we wait with patience. You know, one of the hardest balances to strike in the Christian life is how do you live in the here and now? Well, you live with hope. How do you live with hope? Well, we eagerly long for this world to be made right. We eagerly long to be in right relationship with God. We eagerly long to be like Christ. But Paul says, wait, wait with patience. If you're someone who is suffering, if you're someone who's going through a hard thing, You need to know that God is using your present sufferings and his divine design is he's polishing you, he's making you like Christ. All of this is only adding to the weightiness of our future glory. So the posture as we wait, as we groan, is with patience and with eagerness. Okay, finally, we are told in verses 26 and 27. Yeah, creation groans. Yes, the Christian groans. But thirdly and finally, the Spirit groans. Look at verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here is a huge encouragement and a huge comfort and a huge assurance as a Christian. Paul, this is how much he gets living life in a fallen world. He knows that because you and I are weak, we struggle to pray. Some of you have had a prayerless last few days. Some of you have had a prayerless week 
Maybe a prayerless month. And maybe your prayerlessness is connected to the fact that you're suffering. Sometimes when you're suffering and going through really hard times, you can't even get two thoughts together about God that just stay in your mind. You just get distracted. You can't think. You can't pray. Here's the good news of the gospel. God knows that. And he loves you so much that he's given you his spirit. And the spirit is given because he knows there's times you can't groan, but he will take the things that you cannot articulate, the groans of your body, and the spirit will intercede from the throne of your heart. Like, I love how Paul is this phenomenal theologian. He's just this brilliant pastor. He gets it. Life in this present age makes us weak. And sometimes that weakness is most manifest in our prayerlessness. But you need to know, even when you can't pray, God prays. The Son at the right hand ever lives to intercede on your behalf. The Spirit on the throne of your heart. And even more glorious than that, see when he prays, he prays in accordance with the will of God. Sometimes I pray and... My prayers might be what I want, not what I need. And sometimes my prayers might be shaped by my preferences. Whereas when the Spirit prays on my behalf, it is always in perfect line with the will of God. He prays so that you and I would be more like Jesus. So if I can go back to the very beginning of the sermon. Viktor Frankl said that if you are going to survive life, you need meaning. You need purpose. You need hope. For the Christian, we've got it. You've got future glory. You've got meaning in Christ, purpose in Christ. Here's my question. Does what you have in Christ, your hope of future glory, is it impacting you here and now? Paul said this because that is what he wanted. Christians to persevere and endure in the midst of our present sufferings and in the midst of this present fallen age. And he wanted us to persevere with real encouragement, with real comfort. God will take us all the way to the end. How good is a God we adore, our faithful and unchangeable friend. His love is as great as his power and neither and knows neither measure nor end. Let's pray. Our Father, we would come before you and we would confess that so often the reason that we don't live aright is because we are so quick to forget what we have in Christ. We're so often distracted or discouraged because we set our minds on the present sufferings of this age all the while forgetting the glory that is ours in Christ. And so, God, we pray that you would renew our thinking, renew our minds, and that this morning we would leave here comforted and encouraged by our future glory. 
and that it would impact the way that we see our present sufferings, that it would put them in their proper place. Lord, I'm so mindful that there's so many within our congregation who really are suffering and who really find it hard to string two words together in prayer. And we're so thankful, Lord, that we can pray for them. We can join with your Holy Spirit who is taking the words that they cannot articulate, the groans of their body, and he's putting them into words from the throne of their hearts. Lord, we, we, we pray that the truth that we have heard this morning would be the truth that shapes not just how we live this week, but how we live the rest of our lives. Our lives here are short. In comparison to the glory that is ours to come, our suffering here is light. And the glory that is to come is heavy. Oh God, we'll never understand it. But we do long for it. We long for that day when we will see your son and we will be made like him and we will receive new bodies and we will live in the new creation and we will feast and we will reign and we long for that day when we will be able to perfectly pray to you, say to you face to face, we love you because you have so loved us. No one has loved us like you have loved us. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.